Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Marshall Poe. Based in Northampton, Massachusetts, Marshall is a historian, writer, and editor, and the founder and editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, a very popular podcast network and home to one or two of my own top ten favorite podcasts, which has grown to encompass dozens of channels and a worldwide audience of listeners and hosts. The New Books Network covers a wide array of nonfiction, particularly academic monographs, and matches up experts in their fields with authors to produce great conversations from African-American studies to critical theory to philosophy and religion and science and technology. Throughout his buried career, Marshall has taught at a number of universities, including the University of Iowa, Columbia and Harvard, and NYU. In addition to his academic writing and teaching on his specialty, uh, early modern Russian history, he has also worked on online collaboration and communications media. You can follow him on Twitter at Marshall Poe, and check out the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. Marshall's latest book is How to Read a History Book, The Hidden History of History. In the book, he talks about the nature of the academic practice of investigating, teaching, and writing about history that most of us probably take for granted, and the origins of which are a lot more recent than most of us probably think. It's a fascinating and at many times very funny account of the practice and the lived life of being an academic historian. In this interview, we're going to talk about Marshall's background and career, professional interests, his latest book, and we're going to devote a special segment at the end to talking about the founding and managing the amazing growth of the New Books Network. So thank you, Marshall, for taking the time to be on the Front Matter podcast. Well, thank you, Len, for having me. I appreciate it. I always like to start these interviews by asking people about their, what I call their origin story. And I was reading your book, I realized that you provided a pretty good model for that, where the central conceit you adopt is that you're telling the story of a a thinly veiled fictional account of your own journey. So I was wondering if you could maybe start with talking a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way to uh, studying Russian history. Sure thing. Well, I was born in Huntsville, Alabama uh, at Redstone Arsenal. My father was in the Army. Redstone Arsenal is famous for the place that – it's the place that Werner von Braun started the American rocketry program. And then when I was about five, we moved to Kansas, which is actually where both my parents are from. And so I grew up in Kansas where I attempted to become – Michael Jordan, that was unsuccessful. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I played a lot of basketball and I wasn't really a a particularly good student. Uh, I had dyslexia and we'll come back to that when we talk about the New Books Network. And so I I wasn't a particularly good student until I kind of decided that I wasn't going to become Michael Jordan or anything like Michael Jordan. I just like mentioning my name in the same sentence with Michael Jordan. (laughs) So then I started to apply myself in school and I I was lucky to get accepted to a small college in Iowa, Grinnell College, where I met a man named Dan Kaiser and he was an early modern Russian historian and well – he, he was a very influential person in my life, and I wanted to become like him. And so I tried to do that. I guess I did do that, and I started to study Russian history, and I learned Russian. And then I went to graduate school, or as I call it, gradual school. If I, if I could just actually interrupt you there, what was yeah. it that drew you to Russian history in particular? Yeah, well, it was him, essentially. It was just by accident. They, the people at Grinnell put me in uh, his freshman seminar. And uh, he's, he's a really very impressive guy. And, and I just knew immediately that he, he was somebody that I, I wanted to emulate. And so I took all of his classes and he said, I, I remember very well, I walked into his, I, I, actually I was in his office one day and 
uh, I said, I'm very interested in Russian history. And he said, that's great. And he started to speak to me in Russian. And at that time, I don't think I'd encountered anybody who'd ever spoken a foreign language. <laughs> it, it's, it's really interesting, actually, just to capture this for our um, younger listeners. At the time, there was something going on called the Cold War. Cold War, yeah, there in, was the Cold War. In which Americans and Russians were sort of pitted against each other in what was conceived of as a battle for civilization. It was very serious. Uh, you know, nuclear war was something that was constantly on people's minds, or at least often on people's minds. And just to hear someone speaking in Russian had a bit of a, it had a bit of a, a not a taint, but there was just something, there was a special flavor to hearing that language I, I, spoken. I, I was just amazed that a Russian historian or any historian had to learn foreign language because I didn't. I know that in my high school, this was uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, there were Vietnamese people. They were boat people. And those, I'd heard those people. Uh, but other than that, I hadn't really heard anyone speak a foreign language. He said, geez, Marshall, you ought to take Russian. And I said, OK, I'll do that. And uh, essentially, I studied Russian history and Russian language and went to Russia. It was the Soviet Union then. And, and what, I was a big... what was that? What was that like? Actually, when I was researching for, researching for this podcast, I learned that you'd gone to Russia. I think a few times in the in yeah. the mid eighties. Yeah, how, how were you times. received there? Oh, it was very nice. The Russian people are very nice. But one of the things it does immediately, like, of course, like all uh, college students, I was a big socialist, and then I went to the Soviet Union, and then I wasn't a big socialist anymore. <laughs> it was about that fast uh, because it was a it was a pretty dreadful place in many ways, especially through American eyes. It was uh, the people there lived in in what we would call relative poverty, and of course, there wasn't freedom of expression or freedom of basically anything. It was kind of an impoverished cultural landscape, at least as far as I could see. And and uh, you know, I, I felt very deeply for them. They're very warm people. I liked them very much. They were extraordinarily kind to me, and uh, uh, you know, I I kind of. I wouldn't say that I fell in love with the place, but it was uh, it was kind of a combination of, of, of learning more about America because you could see America through their eyes and also g gaining an appreciation of, of how lucky I had been to be born an American because they, they have been through a lot and continue to go through a lot. Uh, it was also kind of a cautionary tale because – you know, it didn't really work out very well for them, socialism, and uh, you, you could easily see why when, once you were there on the ground with them, um, because they were stifled, essentially. Um, they, they weren't able to do all the creative things that I think people ordinarily want to do. And and so that was that 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 sort of shaped a, a lot of my kind of views on life in general. And, and this does relate, I should say, to the New Books Network, because one of the things I came away from that experience with was a desire to start a business, because you couldn't do that in the Soviet Union. And I don't even know if you can do it in Russia today. But one of the blessings of being an American is that you can, like, if you have a good idea or what you think is a good idea, I had a bunch of ideas, most of them are bad. Um, but if you have a good idea, you can actually uh, start a business. And I'd always kind of wanted to do that even after I started uh, essentially being a professor. It's uh, it's one of the you mentioned um, by traveling to Russia, you learned something about America. And I think you've, you've also spoken and probably written also about how Russians learned from the foreign gaze. Um, I, I wrote a review a few years ago of Estov to Kostin's letters to Russia when I think the New York Review of Books published published a uh -huh. version of it. It's mm -hmm. just fascinating uh, the way and I mean, particular part of Russian history is a concern with the foreign gaze, particularly European. Yeah, that, that's precisely right. And my, my work was on 15th, 16th and 17th century European travelers who traveled to Russia and what they wrote about what they saw. Um, 
and and I was kind of like them in the 1980s when I was traveling there in 1990s and early 2000s and uh, yeah they think a lot about what we think and um, that this has pow- powerfully uh, affected the, their own self-image much more said I mean Americans generally don't consider at least very carefully what other people think about them but Russians do and they and they they think about it a lot it would a lot of it is behind what you see today in Russia because Russia still wants to be a great power even though economically and in many other ways it's not possible for Russia to be a great power it just doesn't have the kind of I guess you'd call it fundamentals that are necessary to be a great power yet they still want to be seen as a great power they want to I was going to say that's an interesting distinction between it's not so much, it seems to me, and I'm not the expert that you are, but being perceived to be a great power is number one. Being uh, related to and spoken about as a great power seems to be the number one concern, whether the the underlying, you know, demographic decline, you know, mortality rate, life yeah, expectancy, think, things like that are less important than, you know, where we are conceived as a great nation. I, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, for many Russians, the, the fall of the Soviet Union was a great tragedy. Um, and... They think of it as a loss of kind of international prestige, which which it was, I suppose, in a certain way. I mean, they gained at least partial freedom in the exchange, but the loss of international prestige is is important for them, particularly for Russian political elites. And you know, Vladimir Putin is is one of those Russian political elites who I think looked back on the Soviet Union and uh, thought it was a pretty great thing. <laughs> and it's gone now, so they have to make their way in the world without it. And that's been a challenge for them. It's uh, it's such. A, I mean, we could we could probably talk about this forever. But I guess the the high level question I'd like to take the opportunity with your with your precious time and expertise to ask you about is, um, uh, you know, for example, from my, my background, my paternal grandparents were Russian Mennonites hmm. um, from Ukraine, uh, so German speaking people who were brought over by Catherine mm-hmm. the Great from Prussia in the 18th century. And um, so I grew up on stories. My grandfather was born in 1904. So I grew up on stories of, you know, anarchy and mayhem. You know, I know a lot of a lot of tricks for protecting your valuables from, <laughs> from raiding bandits. Um, uh, just randomly growing up in, you know, Saskatchewan in Canada, I, I happen to know about how to protect yourself from bandits. Uh, but, you know, my, my great-grandfather was, you know, killed on the way to the gulag because he was accused of being a kulak. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I grew up with no, I, I was just going to say no illusions, but that would be kind of patronizing, like I grew up with a very particular view of the Soviet Union and its origins and what it meant to live under that regime. But, and, and the people who lived there knew it better than I did because they lived there. And yet there is this nostalgia. And there was even at the time amongst many people, and it sounds naive to put it this way, but there's who loved it. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, if you talk to, I was just visiting with a, a friend of mine who is from uh, the Soviet Union, I guess I would say she grew up there. And she looks back on her childhood, for example, and says it was just the most wonderful thing ever. And it's a very child-centric culture. And I think for many people, it, it was a wonderful thing, particularly if you're of a certain age. And I mean much older than me because you had gone through World War II, which was uh, a complete catastrophe in many ways for the Soviet Union. And pretty much uh, that, that's a very low bar, obviously, because the place was virtually destroyed and millions and millions, tens of millions of people were killed by the Germans. So pretty much any upward movement at all looked very good to them and security particularly because, well, as a Russian friend of mine once said, if you want to understand Russian history, you just need to understand this. The Germans are always coming. 
And, well, they did twice, and uh, it's it's they haven't forgotten that, and it's no wonder they're a little bit uh, they're very interested in security matters. I guess I'd put it that way. Yeah, particularly nowadays. I mean, one of the yeah. high-level discourses is about NATO expansion after yeah. the fall yeah. of the Berlin Wall and the collapse yeah, of the Soviet right. Union. Yeah, yeah. Um, going back to uh, to your own story, so um, you went. You said you sort of passed over very quickly that you went to graduate school. Uh, but did you know what graduate school was going to be like when you went to it? And I believe you went to Berkeley. I went to Berkeley, and no, I absolutely did not, and I was not really prepared. That wasn't Grinnell College's fault. It was uh, my own fault because it had been explained to me by Dan Kaiser, and I didn't listen. So at that time, of course, like all um, you know, 21-year-olds who'd done pretty well in college, I thought I was the smartest guy on earth, and uh, I quickly was disabused of that fact once I got to Berkeley. And it turned out to be much more difficult than I thought it would be. Um, you know, as I often say, I, I went to graduate school to read books and talk to people about them. And then they asked me to write one. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> and, and so, no, I, I wasn't really prepared to do the work that was necessary to do it because I was sort of more interested in the intellectual exchange. I, I did learn the craft of a historian and my advisor there, Nicholas Rysanowski, um, made sure I did that. And, it, you know, it was a, it was a good experience, but you know, graduate school is largely self-study. I don't think many people realize this, but you spend a lot of time alone learning the craft, and 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 essentially that's that's what I did when I was there. So uh, eventually, I came out of it with a dissertation, and I worked as a professor. And so, one thing you write about, uh, and just to sort of uh, you know take a step back, the 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 world that you found yourself in was actually one that had only existed for about a hundred years at the time when you started studying academic history, and its origins are from Germany. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they are. Yeah. I mean, essentially what happened was is that um, some people at Johns Hopkins and a couple of other places looked at Germany. Germany had invented the research university in the 19th century, and Americans said, geez, we need that. And so it had been the case that bright young American students had gone to Germany to study in the late 19th century, and the people that came back from uh, those experiences are largely responsible for founding modern American graduate schools and the methods that we use are largely German methods. They, in, they invented them, or at least they uh, were trucked over to the United States by these people. And these methods include, for example, um, that, well, as you mentioned, that you have to write a book or a or sort of semi-book, which, which is a long dissertation. And you also have to do comprehensive exams. Yeah, that's right. I mean, essentially, what's called the seminar method, which is usually there's a there's a professor and the professor leads you through source material, teaches you how to read it. There's a lot of languages involved, and you know it's uh, to some extent it's exegetical or it's it's philological. Um, when I went to graduate school, there was something called the sixty year rule, which meant that you really couldn't study anything that wasn't older than 60 years. And I studied something that was many hundreds of years old. That's changed a lot now so that things that are 10 or 15 years old are now considered history. Uh, they would have been in a political science department or a sociology department or something like that at the time. 
so it was uh yeah it was it was it was quite an experience for me kind of learning what i think of as the german method and one of the really interesting features of the german method is academic freedom and the idea of tenure and i'm just going to quote you back at yourself because you had a line about academic freedom that made me laugh out loud <laughs> it was not something i was <laughs> expecting but you talk about how in, in this very you've got a very funny uh voice in the in the book and um you talk about how they one thing they imported to america was academic freedom and you said that when it was in, in when this concept was introduced in germany since most of these scholars were germans themselves ordnung ensued yes that's, <laughs> just, yeah. just uh, yeah. so, so basically germans are you can give germans this kind of freedom because they'll naturally just behave in an orderly manner anyway yeah um, yeah what do you, so i just wanted to sort of step from there to ask you uh, how do you perceive academic freedom the, the status of academic freedom in america now well i think in general it's very good in the sense that it's very free i mean I'm reminded of something one of my dissertation advisors told me, and that was when I was asking, I said, what should I write my dissertation on? And he laughed out loud and he said, well, you know, that's up to you. And it really is up to people, uh, academics and graduate students, what they're going to write about. And and so on a very basic level, yes, it's 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 very free. You get to choose what you're going to work on. And so that, that that's all good news. And I don't think that's changed one iota in I don't know how many decades. So that that I would say is the, the bottom line with that kind of academic freedom. Of course, there's a lot of stuff going on concerning, I guess I would call it the policing of speech and things like this. I, 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 I'm not really very interested in, in, in that per se. I'm more interested in scholars choosing topics and then pursuing those topics and, and writing them about them in, in, a, in a kind of thorough way. And, and we do that. And, and, and in a sense, you know, I don't think people really realize this, but modern academia is an incredible thing. I mean, the number of books that are published, the amount of research, the, the diligence with which all those researchers pursue those topics is truly incredible. And, and I mean, you would know this if you were sitting in my chair and looking at these books all day and editing the interviews and posting them, that it's just a r remarkable, great, rich ever-growing library of research. And that's a wonderful thing. And people are pretty much free to do what they want in terms of their research. And so that's good. And um, one of the things that you you write about that is, a, I suppose, in many ways, a driver of the extent and nature of that research is something I think a lot of people who maybe don't go to university or never proceeded to graduate school don't know is how incredibly competitive and risky the endeavor is to become a tenured professor with this perch where you can do research on whatever you want safely behind the the protection of tenure. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your own experience of that. When did you when did you learn that, you know, 50% of people actually who get a I mean, that's the number now, but it's always been a low yeah. percentage of people that actually finish a PhD in history get a prof job. Yeah, well, it was talked about when I was in graduate school, because people had stopped retiring. It used to be the case that people retired at 62. And then a cohort just stopped retiring and the number of jobs that were available for historians, I wouldn't say it dried up, but it became smaller. And so this is something we were all aware of. Um, I don't know if competitive is the, is the right word in the sense that we didn't think of ourselves as competing with one another, but we knew that the chances that we would land a tenure track job were much lower than they had been. And I, I wasn't deceived into this by any means. I mean, Dan Kaiser told me that it was a tough go, and he was right. Um, I, I, I do think that part of the fault for this uh, lies in the professoriate, and that is the sense that they accept too many graduate students. 
and they all say uh, generally that, well, you're going to be the exception. You're going to get a job. But, you know, that just statistically isn't true. You're not. I mean, 50 percent of the people that get PhDs in history in the United States don't ever get tenure track jobs. And that that is a, those are long odds, man, if you're going to spend eight years of your life or 10 years of your life studying something. Now, that doesn't mean it isn't valuable in other ways, but I, I do. I spent I spent the last years I was teaching essentially uh, trying to convince undergraduates not to go to graduate school because it, it really is not. Um, I don't know. I, I saw a lot of wasted talent, people that probably should have gone and done something else. But, you know, to an 18 year old who hasn't really had any experience outside school, what do you want to do? You want to become your professor. <laughs> you know, you haven't seen the world. You haven't done anything else. And I was kind of like that myself. It looked like a cushy job. It isn't a cushy job. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I would say more than anything else, I just didn't listen because I thought I was going to be the exception. And in the end, I, I guess I was. But, um, yeah, I, I – I, 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 I want I, to ask you a question actually about, about this. Um, I did my doctorate uh, in the Oxford model uh, where you're all but dissertation from day one. And mm -hmm. so typically people can finish uh, their doctoral – all you do is you write a dissertation. I mean, I say all you do, but you write a dissertation. The idea behind it is partly that at some point you're not going to have to take classes anymore. So they say, when you, we let you in here, <laughs> that's the yeah. point at which you don't have to take classes anymore. Right. And so that – and you don't have comprehensive exams because they're like at some point you're not going to be examined um, mm -hmm. for how much you know. And that point is when we let you in here, the model there is a little bit less, there's a little bit less oversight even than there is, I think in the North American model, the analogy I have is that they kind of like, they arrive, they let you out like a kite and then they tie it, it to a rock and come back three years later. And <laughs> yeah. uh, so you have to, one of the things that, you know, if someone's made it through there, you know, that they're very independent, um, and, uh, they can do things on their own. But I mean, so I'm, I'm saying this in a way that there's, there's a bit of a, in the same way that there's like, a, I guess, a bit, a bit of a tussle between sort of, you know, management consultants and investment bankers for who's more serious. There's kind of a bit of a tussle between the sort of Oxbridge model and the North American model. Um, given, given the time that it takes to finish a PhD, I mean, I just wanted to introduce that into the discussion, which, which model do you think is superior when it comes to the, the scholarship that comes out in the end? You know, I, I really don't know. I mean, when I had graduate students, I always encouraged them to start writing their dissertations from the day they got there and to, uh, to, to get a topic pretty quickly. Uh, I didn't do that because one of the things about graduate school and being an undergraduate that I really enjoyed were, in fact, the seminars and the discussions of books. That Those I found very enriching and really a lot of fun. Um, the writing part, although I've written several books, I, I do enjoy the research and I do enjoy writing, but I really enjoyed sitting in the seminars and talking to other people about these books. And that, that was the most enjoyable part for me. I, I, I can't really speak directly to the – I can't really answer your question because I don't have any experience with the other model. Okay. Yeah. No, that, thank you. Thank you for the straightforward answer. It's, um, it's, uh, I don't have any experience uh, with, uh, with the North American one myself other than, yeah. other than vicariously. So uh, you said you enjoyed your time as an undergraduate. You, one thing I left out of your bio is that you spent some time writing articles for The Atlantic. And one, I did, yeah. And one of those articles is about your experience when you uh, suddenly became an undergraduate administrator because, you know, every every academic has to do their, their administrative time eventually. And you discovered that a lot of undergraduates don't enjoy their time. Yeah, that, that that's right. I mean, I, I'd met a lot of people in 
uh, in my teaching and as an administrator who just didn't really enjoy college very much and they felt like they just had to be there. And I thought that was particularly unfortunate because I really liked it a lot. And the conclusion you might reach from this is that maybe too many people are going to college and I, I wouldn't be the first person to say that. Uh, I, I think college is a good thing for some people. I don't, I don't know that it's a good thing in a global perspective. Um, so yeah, did, does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Um, uh, it's just something uh, I, you know, the, the care for undergraduates is something that has a kind of, the discourse about it has a bit of a paradox to it, where there are people who like, who are like, you know, they pay so much, and then they get neglected when they go. And there are other people who say, the modern university is nothing but a summer camp where people get mollycoddled and have fun. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't talk about yeah, I don't think it's a summer camp or anything like that. Being an undergraduate and studying all the time like that, as you probably should, because it's kind of a job, it's a hard thing. And I have great sympathy for students who do it seriously. Uh, there, there are a lot of students that, that don't do it seriously because they don't really want to be there. Um, and, that, that, and that's fine, too. I mean, most of the people that go to college in the United States go to community colleges and they go part time. And that's fine as well. Um, one of the things I would say is, is that I, I would always tell my undergraduates that they should really try to leave their experience with at least one marketable skill. <laughs> and, and, and by that, I mean, you know, you should be able to code a computer or keep in an account or, you know, something, speak a foreign language and be a translator, something that uh, you might find in the want ads. Because I think that's really important. A lot of people graduate and they're like, what do I do now? And um, often the answer is go to graduate school. And that's not the right answer, generally speaking. So uh, I, I think that it, it yeah, I don't have any solutions to these problems, but I've met a lot of undergraduates who got through their degrees and they just didn't know what they were going to do next. And that that's unfortunate. Um, when I was coming up with questions to ask you and trying to structure this interview, I was uh, one thing I was worried about was coming up with a kind of segue into your work on uh, communal cooperation and organization and online collaboration. And then I discovered that it actually came from your interest in literacy and governance in early modern Russia. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, um, I'm not sure I can. If that's, if that's right. I mean, so I, I listened to a podcast that you did where you talked about how um, you were curious at one point about how the Russian state was able to govern itself given its vast size and low rates of literacy. And it was something about being able to write, the technology of, of writing um, that allowed the state to govern itself. Well, certainly it is the case. I mean, I wrote a whole book on the history of communications. And so certainly it is the case that writing, uh, at least until modern times, had a primarily administrative function. Uh, it was designed uh, essentially to keep lists and keep track of people. And that's what the Russians did with it. They did some communications as well. But, you know, in the case of early modern Russia, they, they wrote no literature, almost no literature whatsoever. They weren't interested in that aspect of it. And, and that aspect of writing and reading is, is really very modern. Uh, that is to say, mass literacy isn't older than the 19th century. And it only came about because we forced people to go to school because we thought reading would be a great thing for them to do. And it probably is. But um, they still don't like to do it, which is a nice segue into the New Books Network. Mm -hmm. But we can talk about that in a second. Yeah, we'll yeah. be getting there soon, I think. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. But you but you wrote, you wrote uh, I mean, one of the, what I was trying to lead, lead, lead towards was your... Uh, article about uh, the hive uh, in the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah, that, that was a kind of seminal thing for, uh, I guess, my own, 
I was going to say intellectual development, but I, I truly think that Wikipedia is an incredible thing. I mean, we did not know prior to the invention of Wikipedia, which was invented by accident, by the way, and, and for good reason, that there were uh, tens of thousands of people out there who were willing to essentially give what they knew about specific topics in the entire range of all topics, free and for nothing. And that is an incredible discovery. Uh, and, and it, Wikipedia, is really the most remarkable compilation of knowledge in human history. There's simply no question about that. And the level of quality in many of those articles is extraordinarily high because if you think about it, uh, most knowledge is in people's heads. And what they're doing is kind of data dumping about, you know, whatever it might be they know. Uh, you know, in the case of uh, early modern Russia, I can, kind of came upon it. I found an article on a fellow in Wikipedia that I had written about named uh, Sigismund von Herberstein. Nobody's ever heard of this guy. He was a 16th century Austrian diplomat. And I was just amazed that that article existed because I thought there were about 30 people in the world who knew who that guy was. But apparently one of them wrote an article in Wikipedia. And I was just like, wow, that is deep. That is really, really deep. And um, you could see how rapidly it expanded and how much people used it. And I, it was truly an incredible kind of collaborative endeavor. But, but it was collaborative. I mean, it was made collaborative because the technology was right for it. And and the people who founded it, again, they didn't realize that this is what it was before because they started Wikipedia as a, a kind of an effort to put an encyclopedia online. And they went to get experts to do it. And the experts did what experts do, and that is uh, take too much time <laughs> and then argue about what the hell they were going to write. And so then they opened it up to everybody, and it turns out that everybody knows a lot of things. And and so then uh, they instituted this editorial function. Larry Sanger is largely responsible for this, the, the rule of neutrality. And and they allowed people to play online, play, I use that word advisedly, uh, in a kind of um, informed and structured and usually very civil way. And the results are, I think, just think they're absolutely astounding. And And that was important for me because I saw that large groups of people with the right technology and with the right incentives could collaborate in a way to produce uh, re really very useful things. And Wikipedia is nothing if not useful. It is super useful. It's the first place everybody goes when they want to find something out. And chances are what they find on Wikipedia is going to be pretty close to accurate or at least a good starting point so then they can go into the monographic literature or the scientific literature or whatever it happens to be. And yeah, I just wanted to take the opportunity to ask you a little bit about that. I mean, uh, since you've, you know, you've written about it uh, and thought about it deeply, what is it about the structure of Wikipedia that directs it in uh, towards truth? Uh, well, I think it, than, I, sorry, just to, just to contrast it with, you know, the, the morass of uh, social media. Yeah, well, I think it's the editorial function. It's that pretty much anybody can edit a page. And that was the way Larry designed it so that anybody could go in and they could look at what had been written and then they could go to the discussion page and they could ask questions to the writers about what they had written and they could rewrite it. And then, of course, there were alerts when things were rewritten so that if you wrote the page, you would get an alert that somebody had changed something you'd written and you would go back and you would discuss it with them. And they were very insistent on this rule of neutrality, that it was a, an encyclopedia and it was not a political platform and it was not something to yell and scream about. It was about the facts. Uh, and that was that. And they 
this created a culture in Wikipedia where, where people would come and actually discuss what, what was in the articles. Oftentimes, the discussion pages are many, many, many times longer than the entry because people are talking about you know, whether this particular sentence or this particular word is the right word to use in describing X, whatever X is. So it's, it's really that uh, open, collaborative editorial structure and the rule of neutrality that it has to be neutral, that you can't be grinding any axes on it that, that I think made it um, so successful. And then mo most of the content on Wikipedia is not political at all. <laughs> you know, it's it's yeah, it's geographies and things like that. Yeah, it's just, it's not political in any way. It's just the facts. And um, you know, there's a town, Northampton, Massachusetts. What are you going to say about it? Well, hopefully, uh, stuff that's true. <laughs> you reminded me, me actually of a, a, a an experience I had. Um, oh, gee, almost twenty years ago now, where um, I attended a talk by Umberto Eco, and he talked about he was in the camp of you know cheerful, like cheerful in the sense of like. Um, sure profoundly sure of himself that the internet was going to be a disaster for knowledge unless there was an authoritative internet yeah that was that was created to exist alongside it and my instinctive reaction was fuck you yeah uh people want to share and people are going to get it right if the struct if they have the right structure and i mean that is as with this cheerful sense of confidence that on my side will will prove to be true what do you think it is about that sort of divides people in this way where some people just seem to feel that we without an authoritative guiding hierarchy we can't function i i, I don't really know except to say that all knowledge is in some sense collaborative you know again as the author of you know articles and books and things like this i didn't really write them alone i sort of stood on the shoulders of giants and not so giants and there were a lot of other people involved in the production of those things and i was really every book is a dialogue with people that have written about whatever it is you're writing before and you know there are many many people who have a hand in in the production of these things they're collaborative as well they're not as collaborative because you know your name appears on it you're responsible for whatever it is you say but you certainly want to take into account what other people have said about it and you want to try to get all the data you have and you can get and you want to try to take in as many viewpoints as you possibly can uh, so that you can give a, a reasonably convincing account of something. And, and there's really no substitute for discussion. I mean, John Stuart Mill had it exactly right. You've you got to get all the ideas out and then you sort them and you sort them by discussion and deliberation. There is no other way to do it. Uh, and Wikipedia does a wonderful job of that, I think. Uh, another institution that does a good job of that is the New Books Network. So I think it's been <laughs> building up to that the whole time. Um, so uh, what's the origin story of the New Books Network? Um, the origin story of the New Books Network, you know, I said that uh, when, when I was a kid, I had trouble learning to read. So I, I, I like to listen to things. I, I really do. And I always have. And I'm a big radio fan. And... So let's put that in our back pocket. And then I went to graduate school and I, I guess I became a writer as well. And I read a lot and I, 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 I had learned to read and I read effectively and so on and so forth. But I always had this idea that, you know, people really like to listen. And what I often say about this is, you know, we were born with listening organs. They're called ears. Uh, we were not born with reading organs. Uh, 
our eyes are not designed to read. And for people like me, it's very difficult even to learn. And a large percentage of people never learn to read because for whatever reason, their kind of onboard technology is not quite working the way that uh, is optimal for our society. So people really favor watching and listening over reading. And I always knew that. And, you know, one of the things I enjoyed, as I say, I enjoyed the seminar room, but I enjoyed listening to, you know, Terry Gross or somebody interview an author. And so uh, I had been working at The Atlantic and I'd left academia for the first time. And I said, well, you know, I, I really am interested in disseminating serious ideas to large groups of people. I, I think that's very important for democracy. I won't quote Thomas Jefferson or anything like that, but you get the picture. And uh, what I discovered at The Atlantic was they did really great work. Uh, I worked there for five years, and but the medium was the wrong one. And I, I really felt like audio or video was the right medium. So then the question was a, a kind of an economic one. How do you do it effectively? And here technology steps in. And I had, you know, I've been doing this for 13 years. Podcasting when I started was not really a thing. But I knew that you could record a conversation with somebody because somebody had done it with me. And so I started to look into it. And I thought, well, what if I interviewed people who had written pretty serious nonfiction books and put them online, would anyone listen? And believe me, I did not know if anyone would listen. And so I did it and I started New Books in History, which was the first podcast in the New Books Network. It wasn't the New Books Network at the time. And people did listen. And and again, you know, I have to give thanks to like the Apple Corporation because they had kind of brought podcasting to uh, the public mind and they had aggregated podcasts and they made it very easy for people to find them. And so and they still do that, by the way, and they do it for nothing, which again is much to their credit. And so people started to listen to the New Books Network and I was a professor at the time at the University of Iowa and it grew and other people from other disciplines started to contact me and say, well, why isn't there New Books in philosophy or why isn't there new books in anthropology? And I said, I don't know, <laughs> but if you will host it, I'll do all the technical stuff. And essentially that's how it started. And then I began to contact people as well and saying, you know, there is an East Asian studies. Do you want to do East Asian studies? I can set that up. And it grew into this kind of collaborative process. Me and now 350 other hosts uh, produce these interviews with, um, you know, serious nonfiction writers, I would say. It really grew organically. It was never planned. Um, and eventually I left being a professor to run it full time. Yeah. And uh, just to give some people a sense of the scale. So you mentioned, uh, I think, over 300 uh, podcast hosts that you have now. Yeah. Um, and there are, I think, 86 different podcasts. I think they're 91 now. I lose track sometimes. Yeah, I, I really do. I got the sense that it changes it and it's growing quickly and um, over a million downloads a month. Yeah, about a million a month now. It's uh, right around there. And I just just to give people a sense of what a what an accomplishment that is. Um, so you write in your book very well about how about the origins of contemporary academic publishing and how they come from this German model that we spoke about earlier, and how essentially an academic monograph functions primarily as a credential. So you can't get tenure without publishing a monograph right. nowadays. Right. Uh, but it has been an important part of the life of an academic and particularly an academic historian going back a long time. But of course there was no, there's a huge market for popular history books. There is not a huge market for often very narrowly scoped uh, and specialized academic history books. And uh, so the university press model was brought over 
Uh, and so university presses were created and they needed customers. So university libraries were created. Uh, and so there were all these books being written by, primarily by very specialized academics as credentials that uh, then uh, actually the popular historians use as a very wonderful resource for their popular histories. But basically, books were being written by people and published in these presses and bought by univer these university presses and bought by university libraries. So there was this very closed loop. Uh, and what you've discovered is that there's actually a huge interest in all this work that was sort of locked away in that closed loop. Yeah, I, I would say that's l largely accurate. The university presses are really the kind of backbone of what we do, and they do an incredible thing. Again, it's it's really a kind of world historical significance. They publish, I don't know, 15,000 monographs a year, and, and these are by people that have devoted much of their life to studying particular topics, some of them extraordinarily interesting, some of them extraordinarily good, but they don't really ever reach the public because the public doesn't have time to uh, find them and get them and or I guess the money to buy them, although they do buy a lot of them. So I was thinking of trying to find a way to get that richness out into the public. And that's really what the New Books Network is, because we we essentially give people an entry point to this huge world of what I call monography, you know, like <laughs> all of all of these books, which some of which are just terrific. And, you know, they're truth with a capital T for the most part. And and they're like anti-fake news. So if you want to go deep, you're going to end up at a university press book or a serious nonfiction book. And many people do want to go deep. And that was a kind of discovery that there were people out there who are not academics or graduate students or whatever who are really actually interested in these topics. And they might not have the time to go look for them. But if they're presented with them and they're given an entry point like an audio interview of an hour with somebody about Charles V, they will listen to it. Um, because they kind of remember who Charles V was from an undergraduate class that they took. And heck, they got to commute and they're tired of listening to NPR. So <laughs> they listen to us. Yeah, well, one of the one of the really great and, you know, maybe this is to my own detriment, but one of the really great features of 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 the way that the New Books Network works is that often it's another professor interviewing the professor who wrote the book. And so getting to hear and and, and of course, like, you know, the academic books are often expensive. Um, they can be intimidating just to look at. Um, uh, yeah. But but the idea that you can be anyone anywhere, and then you can hear these two experts who, you know, their bread and butter is, is writing and, and lecturing, uh, have a high-level conversation with each other about a topic, that you can just access this on the bus is amazing. Yeah, that, that's really our mission right there in a, in a nutshell, is that the people that are hosts are generally professors. They really know the topic very well, and that's by design. They're either professors or graduate students. Sometimes they're writers and journalists, but they really know the topic very well, and they know the right questions to ask. And then we have people who have just written a book, and when people start to talk about their books, they can be very eloquent. And if they're not very eloquent, they certainly know that the, the subject matter extraordinarily well. And they'll get deep into the weeds. And we definitely encourage that on the New Books Network. We want people to get into the weeds because what we've discovered is that people really want a kind of detailed information. I mean, in a sense, it has to be an overview because it's only an hour long, usually, or 30 minutes. But it's a good entry point. You know, it's like reading a Wikipedia article, except you listen to it. And it's an engaging discussion because you have two experts talking about something they both know everything about. 
Speaking of the weeds, the final segment of this podcast is reserved for weeds uh, for people who are willing <laughs> to stay, stick around long enough. And so one thing I want was really looking forward to talking to you about was the actual work it takes to build and maintain a growing network like this. So one, one question I wanted to ask you is how do you recruit new interviewers into your network? Well, uh, we used to interview them on listservs. Uh, and many academic disciplines have them on something called HNET, and we still do that occasionally. But uh, the network has grown in terms of popularity and uh, sort of coverage to the extent that we most mostly people just approach us and say, "I'd like to be a host on New Books and whatever it is." And you know, as uh, the co-editor Leanne Wilson said, we we succeeded by saying yes not no. <laughs> hmm. So if somebody comes to me and says, yeah, I, you know, I have a PhD in this and I want to interview people in my field, I'm going to say yes. I mean, 99% of the time I'm going to say, that's great. Do it. And I'll set you up and I'll do all the post-production and I'll pu publicize them for you and I'll publish them. All you do is the raw interview. You just talk to the person for an hour on the phone and I do absolutely everything else. And I always tell them, you know, you're the talent, I'm the producer. And that's just the way you should think about it. And you should think about the content, not the rest of the stuff that is necessary to run a podcast or a podcast network. I know how to do that and I can do it very effectively. I think <laughs> – I don't mean to sound boastful and it, this is not meant in that way. But I think I've uh, I think I've edited and published more podcasts than any person alive I've done 7,000 of them. We just did our 7,000 uh, episode. And so I got it down. I know just how to do it really fast and really well. So there's no reason that, you know, the author on a book about Charles V should be worried about that. Um, As someone who does production just in my own humble way on podcast episodes, how do you how do you do it? Uh, I, you know, since, as you pointed out, the people that do the uh, – Interviews largely talk for a living because they're university teachers and the people who write the books know everything about the books and speak in paragraphs. There's really not a lot of editing to be done. Um, we don't spend a lot of time on production values. We've gotten some criticism about that. But, you know, the network runs on a shoestring. I mean, I had day jobs until very recently. So for 10 years, uh, it, I would work my day jobs and then um, come back and edit audio and work on the servers and publish blog posts and all this other stuff. Uh, so I'm really it, interested in the, in the issue of scale, the scale that you operate at. Uh, do you provide new recruits with standard training material? Like, Oh yeah. Keep your mouth absolutely. Set when the other person's. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We have a, we have a, what's called the new books host handbook, which explains in, in some detail exactly how things are done and how to conduct an interview. But, you know, I should also say that they're free to conduct the interview in any way they want. One of the, the kind of bedrock principle of the new books network is the host pick the books. I never have anything to do with that ever. So if a host says, I want to do this book. I'm going to say, okay. I, I mean, they don't even ask me. They just do them because they're the experts. They should decide what the field wants to, or what, what listeners want to hear or what's important in their field. So we give them a lot of editorial control. And then, you know, they record the interview. I explain how to do that. Um, you know, again, 
given the vagaries of the internet, sometimes the audio is better than other. It's improved a lot. Technology is catching up with it. Uh, we use Zencaster to do most of our interviews now, which is much better than many other methods. But if you listen to early NBN interviews, they don't sound very good because the technology was not very good. And there's really not much you can do about that. Uh, you know, it, people will say, as you know, content is king. Well, we're testing that proposition. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really interesting. You mentioned, you mentioned when we were corresponding before this uh, interview, and when we were arranging it, you mentioned that you use ZenCaster, and I'll put a yeah. link, I'll put a link to that in the, yeah. in the transcription for this interview. Yeah. Um, so it's an in-browser service yeah, that just, that's, just that's records it. the audio, and it's dead simple. Yeah, that's right. And what it does is it records locally. So essentially it records the signal from the microphone um, directly to your computer. So it doesn't rely on the V, uh, the VIOP or VOIP. I was confused that um, it doesn't rely on the Skype connection. It's just a monitor. So what's actually recorded is recorded on both sides independently. And so the sound, I have to take the two files and then marry them. And that's where I do the editing in a editing uh, program. And and, you know, they have to be lined up and sometimes you get something called drift uh, because different computers record at different speeds. But uh, I'm, as I say, I've done 7,000 of them. I'm really good at it. Yeah, <laughs> I can do it. That's, yeah, That's really interesting. I didn't know that it recorded locally on both sides. That's something yeah. that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really – it's a really tricky thing because it, recording a podcast because you need to sort of two people to get their shit together on both yeah. sides and things can yeah, that's things, right. things can and do go wrong. Well, um, and this is yeah, I was gonna, I'm glad you said that because you know for for those of you that are, I, I mean again, it's the, the audio quality issue is is important to us, but in many cases since you know you're interviewing somebody who is you know in the Dominican Republic, they don't have a very good internet connection. They, they, their computer isn't very good. I mean, there's only so much you can do. And particularly on the guests side, the hosts are usually pretty squared away because they've set up a kind of small studio and I've explained how to do it. But the person that you're talking to, you know, I, I have a nice microphone in front of me and I have a nice computer because I do this all the time and this is going to sound good. But, you know, in many cases you have people that don't have those luxuries because they live in some other part of the world where it's not possible, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to listen to them. We should try to listen to them. <laughs> oh yeah, I totally agree. And um, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things I think that is just a wonderful feature of the podcast format that people have grown to embrace is the, I mean, the long form interview format yeah. of the podcast is the odd bit of randomness. Uh, you know, you yeah. go into it, there might be, I think I listened to a David Axelrod podcast where a senator walked in eating an ice cream cone and you could hear yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Uh, you can hear, we were talking about this, you know, dogs or, or kids in the background, things like that. And, and I think people understand that like, it's the, it's the discussion that's most important and you kind of see your, it sort of makes it feel almost a little bit like you're there, right? Like if you were sitting in a yeah, room, get, that, getting to listen exactly to people, right. you, like a dog might run in, then you give it, yeah, that's exactly, give it a that's exactly, and, you know? Yeah, that, that is exactly right. And it's one of the things I discovered is it really is just a discussion. We don't do reviews on the New Books Network. I'm very sort of strident about this. We do not do book reviews. What we do is we allow the authors a chance to tell people what they found in their research. Full stop. That's all. And you can disagree with it or you can agree with it, whatever you like. We're not going to tell you this is a good book or it's a bad book, but you can listen to the author. The author will tell you in a straightforward way what they found in the course of their research. And I, I think that's really kind of wonderful in a way because it kind of takes takes the evaluative kind of political part of it out of the equation. We're just about the facts and whatever the author says, the author is responsible for what they say about their book. 
and and we provide you an opportunity to go and listen to that and and decide whether you want to read the book and we hope that you do because we want you to support university presses and all of these other people the other thing i would say uh, while you mentioned this thing about length is i remember when i started that everybody said they had to be short 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 15 minutes well <laughs> what we discovered is we have a lot of people that complain about interviews being too short not too long never too long but too short so we publish interviews that are two hours long now. Sometimes nobody nobody complains. <laughs> yeah, I call them. I call those when that happens a uh, feature length uh, yeah. interviews. Uh, and yeah, people love it. Uh, then people you, do love it. You can just you can just pause it and listen. To, like people, I mean, one of the re things that I should bring up is that the reason then you brought up Apple. One of the reasons it's called a podcast is because I don't know if they still do. They probably do, but Apple introduced something called the iPod. In the early oh, I remember them well. I bought the first one. Yeah, it cost they, me five hundred dollars. Yeah, they were, <laughs> but it was in the early twenty first century. And the thing about these things was that you could easily transfer digital music to this device, and you could have up to you know I think that the, the sort of number they advertised was ten thousand albums worth of of music in your pocket. Yeah. And the thing that it one of the many things that it absolutely transformed was commuting uh, yeah. on public transport or walking around because now you could listen to whatever you wanted. Uh, and uh, not, you know, not sort of, as it were, just the radio or something like that, which you can't listen to when you're on the tube or something yeah, that's like right. that. Um, that's right. And, 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 and you, I was going to say also, you know, the, the, the wonderful thing about podcasting is that it, it's kind of gone past the do-it-yourself phase, I think, now. But still, you can start your own podcast like I did 13 years ago. And it allows what I call, and I know this will sound a little bit jargon-esque, narrow casting. So, you know, how many people are interested in Islamic studies in the United States? I don't know, 10,000 maybe, but those people are underserved by broadcast media. But in the world of podcasts, they're not because they can go listen to new books in Islamic studies <laughs> because there are dedicated hosts and dedicated authors out there working on these topics. And you can find that on Apple Podcasts. And you can, you know, again, we do 91 different subjects on the New Books Network. And so if you really want to geek out on something, you can do that. You cannot do that on NPR. You cannot do that on the BBC. Uh, and, and that's really, I think, the wonderful thing about um, podcasting. And in that sense, it's like Wikipedia because uh, pretty much everything is there. If you're Well, I wouldn't say everything is there, but a lot of stuff is there that would not be there because of the economics of broadcast media. You know, They need to aggregate enormous audiences. On the New Books Network, we don't have to do that. We don't have hits. We have no hits. <laughs> we we have a slow and steady flow of interviews that serves many, many, many small audiences in a very targeted way. And that's really the intent of it, you know, so that we can serve those small communities of really interested parties. Yeah, the only qualification I guess I would add to that as an outsider to uh, the New Books Network is uh, it's not slow. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> not slow. Yeah, we do thirty. Yeah, we do thirty-five. We do thirty-five different. Uh, we do thirty-five new episodes a week, and and that that is probably going to rise a little bit. And it's all done. You know, I I think one of the most remarkable things about the New Books Network is it's done for almost no money. You know, so for example, it costs somewhere between thirty and sixty thousand dollars to publish a monograph, soup to nuts. And that does not include the research costs for the scholar. Uh, the New Books Network runs on less than that and does, what, 10 to 12 million downloads a year. So that's a great efficiency. 
Yeah, it's it's a really amazing accomplishment in all sorts of ways. And as as you, as you mentioned, you're sort of capturing this amazing explosion, excellent research that is a new historical phenomenon in yeah. audio format that can be distributed for free all around the world is really quite an amazing thing. Um, the last question I wanted to ask you, so for any budding podcast or experienced podcasters out there, one feature of podcasting is that crazy things can happen during them. My go-to story is that I once had an interview interrupted by the approach of a poisonous snake. What's, what's your story? Yeah, my story would be I was... Uh... I was interviewing somebody in Israel and they said, I have to go to the basement. And I'm like, why do you have to go to the basement? There's an air raid siren going off. There's incoming missiles. So uh, can we pause now? <laughs> but we run into things like this all the time. I mean, you know, when you've done as many interviews as we have, uh, lots of stuff happens. And again, that's kind of part of the charm of it because it seems, you know, it's lively and it is live. I mean, essentially when I, when I tell hosts, I said, you should think of it like a live take. You know, we're not going to do very much editing. I mean, I always tell them, like, if somebody says the war of what I call a brain fart, I'm sure you've encountered these. Like somebody says the war of 1812 oh, is in 1813. <laughs> we'll take that out. <laughs> but short of that, we're not going to really take anything out. So if your kids walk into the room, we might take that out. If your dog barks, we'll probably leave that in. Birds chirping, you know, all this stuff. You know, it's part of the charm. You, you remind me, actually, um, I didn't do this for you, but normally part of my – I have a little spiel that I give to, to guests, uh, and I like to say three things. One is um, if I ask you a question you don't want to answer, you can just say no, and I'll edit that out. The second yeah. thing is if you want to start an answer over, that's to just say that, and I'll edit it out. But the third thing I added after someone sa contacted me after an interview and said, what I told you about my service in Afghanistan might be classified. Can you please delete that part? <laughs> Um, I've had I've had that happen before is where, you know, people that have worked essentially in, in the administration or some administration or had worked for the FBI or CIA or something. They've said, yeah, well, I talked about that, but I shouldn't really have talked about that. Can you take that out? Sure, yeah, I'll yeah. take that out. Definitely. It, it can be and it can be corporate secrets or just, you know, something right. they signed an NDA about. I mean, like it sounds it sounds kind of romantic when we put it this way. But like, you know, it's, yeah. oft, it's often kind of just mundane. I mean, I've. I've I've even had people say just you know can we just cancel the whole, can we just not do the whole thing Yeah well I always tell people you know and I tell this is in the host handbook is that we don't go for gotcha moments like if if something really goes wrong or somebody says the wrong thing that we 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 take that out we, I always tell them we want the author to say exactly what they want to say no nothing else that's it just what you want to say and you know if if there's a brain fart or something like that what well, we're going to take that out because it's irrelevant yeah, and the, the important thing, I mean, I don't have nearly the experience you have, but the important the important thing is to, one of the very important things is to know what your podcast is for and to communicate that to the guest. And so yeah. if, if you're not doing journalism, like be aware that you're not doing journalism uh, yeah. and make it clear to them and then everybody knows, you know, yeah. where they're at. Right. And, and we do not do journalism. Again, you know, I always tell the, you know, and this is in the handbook too, as I say, encourage your guests to be expansive. So I'm, I have another sort of anecdote like this. I did an interview with a guy who wrote a biography of Bismarck. I think I asked one question and he talked for 40 minutes. <laughs> Those, are the best. <laughs> Those are the best guests. It was great. He gave a great lecture on Bismarck. <laughs> you know, and I was really very pleased. Like he said exactly what he, he knew what he wanted to say. He said it and we were done. I'm like, that's terrific. <laughs> and and actually, in your handbook, do you have any advice uh, for what to do? I mean, I get it, it would be rare in, in your case, given the nature of your podcasts, but what to do if someone is not being a good interviewee? And I don't mean that in, in a blame way, just, you know, giving short answers or something like that. 
Yeah, well, that usually gets covered when I say to them, be expansive, and, and they usually do. There, there have been cases where people have been interviewed and they, they simply have a kind of stage fright. And then we usually interrupt the interview and we say, you know, would you like to reschedule or would you like to prepare or should we send you prompt questions or something like this? Very rarely happens, though, because the people that we talk to, again, they speak for a living as teachers usually. And so they're usually pretty good at it. And again, we don't pay, you know, this isn't the Joe Rogan show. I'm not a comedian and either of the other hosts, and it's just not that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I, I get where you're going with that, but we, we usually don't have that problem. Well, uh, we didn't have that problem. Uh, no, we didn't. <laughs> and I, I want to thank you for that. Yeah. Um, and I want to thank you for taking the time to do this interview. Uh, for anyone who's interested, please check out the New Books Network. You will find something there yeah. for you. Uh, and um, check out How to Read a History Book, The Hidden History of History. You can find it on Amazon. It's a really great and funny look at uh, the nature of academic history, how it was created, and how it is conducted. So thank you very much, Marshall, for taking the time today. All right. Thanks, Len. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.